You're listening to the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. This episode is brought to you in association with Off the Shelf. Dr David Clark and Andrew Robinson present Folkloric Customs in the Time of COVID-19. Hello and welcome to this podcast on folkloric customs in the time of COVID-19. My name is David Clark and I'm one of the founding members of the Contemporary Legends Research Group at Sheffield Hallam University. The recording you've just heard was made last summer at the strange and ancient burning of Bartle custom at the village of West Witton in Wensleydale, North Yorkshire. Every year on the Saturday nearest St Bartholomew's Day, the 24th of August, the villagers make a straw effigy called Old Bartle. Now Bartle looks like a cross between a scarecrow and a scary Guy Fawkes dummy. The eerie effect is completed by two battery-powered light bulbs for his eyes. Just as dusk falls, a group of men carry Bartle in a procession around the main street, accompanied by a crowd of villagers. They stop outside pubs and certain houses, and every time they stop, John Harker, a local man, chants the rhyme. At the climax of the ritual, the effigy is doused in petrol and set alight, as the chanting, singing and drinking continues into the night. No one really knows how long the good folk of West Witton have been burning their Bartle, or why. But the burning of Bartle is just one of many hundreds of similar colourful and mysterious calendar customs that take place around the British Isles every year. Each one marks a point in the ritual year that is marked by processions, customs and rituals. Christmas, New Year, May Day, Halloween, to name just a few. As a folklorist, I'm fascinated by these communal activities and the stories and legends that they have generated. In this podcast, with contributions from my colleague, Andrew Robinson, we will explore how the coronavirus lockdown has impacted upon these ancient customs. As folklorists, we are interested in how local communities have adapted to these unprecedented changes and how these customs and traditions have evolved. We are also collecting and recording new customs and traditions, such as the clapping for carers, and the making of scarecrows. These new COVID-19 customs have appeared spontaneously as folk continue to express the need for communal activities, even when they are prevented from gathering together in large groups. Calendar customs and traditions are just one of our areas of research inquiry at the Centre for Contemporary Legend. The CCL was founded in 2018 in Sheffield Hallam's Department of Media and Communication by a small group of like-minded scholars who share an interest in aspects of folklore and contemporary legend. We wanted to build on the international reputation of the city of Sheffield in terms of legend scholarship that can be traced back to 1964, when Professor John Widdison founded the Centre for English Cultural Tradition and Language at the University of Sheffield. I became fascinated by folklore as an undergraduate at the university's Department of Archaeology during the 1980s and went on to complete my PhD at the Centre for English Cultural Tradition in 1999. 
My colleagues at Sheffield Hallam's new Centre for Contemporary Legend include senior lecturer in media, Diane Rogers, who is working on a PhD on how folklore and modern legends are depicted on TV and in films, music and comics. We also have another PhD student, Sophie Parks Neald, who is writing a novel based around a fictional calendar custom. Senior lecturer in photography, Andrew Robinson, has a special interest in calendar customs that began with a research project in the 1990s. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Andrew? Thanks a lot, David. A key theme across much of my photographic work and research has been the visual representation of individual and communal identity. And I became interested in folklore and calendar customs in the early 1990s, when a friend suggested I should visit the bonfire parades at Lewis in East Sussex. Knowing nothing of the event, I attended and spent the evening following the most traditional parade, the Cliff Bonfire Society. And I was absolutely fascinated by the apparent anarchy of the event, the sound, the explosions, the fire, and the burning of effigies of politicians and celebrities who were out of favour with the townspeople. And I was amazed to encounter this in contemporary England. To me, it seemed kind of out of place and out of time, something we might expect to see on a documentary about South America or the Far East, but not in rural Sussex. This kind of inspired me to begin to research and visit other traditions and calendar customs, and I spent the next six years or so documenting festivals the length and breadth of England. I've recently been revisiting the project, exploring the ritualistic role that photography plays in both documenting and communicating these events across different media, but also across time. And this has led to me working with David and Diane on the creation of the Centre for Contemporary Legend at Sheffield Hallam University. At the Centre for Contemporary Legend, we're obviously interested in aspects of legend and myth that have grown out of unprecedented periods of history, such as the one that we're living through. Now, locally, the story of the Eam Plague of 1665 to 66 and the heroic efforts of the inhabitants of that Peak District village to isolate themselves have become world famous. And the struggles and the sacrifices that people have made in 2020 are almost like a modern reflection of some of those struggles that we can see in the legend of the Yim Plague. Now, the definition of a legend is a story that's told as true and often believed as being true, but is unverified. And the traditional story is that on or about the 2nd of September in 1665, George Vickers, an itinerant tailor who was lodging with a family in the village, received a box of textiles from London. When this arrived, the contents of the box were found to be damp, so he laid them out before the fire to dry off. The box itself with the textiles harboured rat fleas that were carrying the bacterium of the bubonic plague, which at that time was raging in London. Within a few hours, he began to feel ill, and on the next day, he got worse. He died on the 6th of September and was buried in the village, the first victim. Now, that story is effectively a legend. We have no way of verifying it, but many people believe it has been fact. It's also interesting, David, isn't it, how the legend promotes the town's rector, the Reverend Wampesson, as the hero of the story, for leading the populace, isolating the village, and holding outdoor services in nearby Cluckett's Delph. The town's sacrifice was indeed great. Montpesson's lockdown allowed the plague to spread throughout the village in the summer of 1666, with up to three quarters of the inhabitants dying from the disease, including his wife, actually. And his children, however, survived, as they were quickly sent away to Yorkshire before the village was isolated. As Patrick Wallace has pointed out, this traditional narrative or legend, however, took some time to establish. 
Early accounts make little mention of Monpesson and focus rather on his predecessor, the nonconformist Thomas Stanley, who stayed in the village after being replaced by Monpesson in 1662. In some early accounts, it's actually Stanley who's credited with imposing the lockdown, and even London as an external source for the contagion isn't mentioned until 50 years later. The current legend actually owes much to publicity and interest linked to the bicentenary of the plague in 1866, when a celebration was organised to raise funds for the church at a time when Ian was becoming a tourist destination. And interestingly, the yearly Plague Sunday ritual with a memorial parade and an outdoor service in Cluckett's Delph also dates from this time. Uh, This year's service was held via internet to protect attendees from our current plague at a time when Ian's story once again seems to have contemporary relevance, I think. It's the story of the efforts of the inhabitants of the village to isolate themselves and all the struggles that they went through and the personal sacrifices and the entire families that died that have made that story so striking and so world famous. And you can see in it reflections of legend that have recurred in more recent years, such as the idea of scapegoating outsiders and of plague being brought into communities from outside, and also the efforts to identify the first person who brought the contagion from outside, often known as patient zero. Thinking about these uh, customs and traditions, whilst providing strong links to the past, they're still very much contemporary events and they develop and adapt from year to year. They're specific to a particular place on a particular day each year and very often they're really rooted in the community. They're not really, there might be a committee or there might be some kind of group of people who organise it, but it's not run by the local council or the local church, it just grows out of the community. And it provides that community with a a sense of place and something that distinguishes them from the village down the valley or the town down the road. They mark the ritual year, they're a form of local expression and quite often they just seem to happen. People gather on a given day each year to follow an established set of observances, often for no more reason than that's the way it's always been done, time out of mind. I remember when I was attending the Castleton Garland in the 1990s, when the garland was prepared. The garland is like a a steel frame covered with wildflowers, and this was being prepared in in a barn on the edge of town, and there was just one person working away on it, and I said, are you going to do it all on your own? Oh, no, no, such and such will be turning up at two o'clock. I said, oh, right, I've, I've... does he live locally? No, no, he lives lives up north of Blackpool. Oh, right, have you spoken to him? Oh, I've not spoken to him since last year. He'll be here at two, though, and he turned up at two o'clock, because he does every year. And whilst there may be variations from year to year, and, and procedures might slowly change over time, on the whole, this ritualistic observance is one of the defining features of these events. And the other thing, um, for me, having visited some of them year after year after year, is that it's very hard not to go. You kind of, when you've been to one of these customs four or five times, I don't know, it's not so much bad luck or that you'd be cursed if you didn't go along, but there's this kind of feeling that um, you don't want to break this little tradition that you've created of your own by attending them. I don't know if you've felt that when you've been to... No, I've definitely felt that. I mean, I went to Castleton Garland for... Must have been every year for at least a decade, and you know you do so. It is something you look forward to, isn't it? And that you mark up in your in your diary as well. The first sort of 
calendar custom that I remember going to is the Hamsworth sword dance. Because I, I was born at Hamsworth in Sheffield and there was this sort of thing that you have that local identification and numerous times the team there has have tried to sort of persuade me to start attending some of their training sessions because they always need new blood. But I've never gone, I've never gone along with that. And, and interestingly, you now go to Grenoside rather than Hansworth. I do go to Grenoside, yeah, because I've now moved from Hansworth and I'm now on the other side of the city. So I do tend to go to Grenoside and Boxing Day, which is like the traditional day when the, the longsword dancers happen. You have to make the choice. Is it Hamsworth or Grenoside? And um, I've, I've been going to Grenoside this last few years. I saw you this year at Grenoside, didn't I? We were both there at the same time and I was actually doing some recording of the dancers. So I've got a little clip here that we, we could listen to. Tantero, tantero, the drums they do beat. The trumpets they do sound upon call. Methinks music's here, some bold captains near. March on, ye brave soldiers, away! Now, of course, the teams perform all through the year. When I was a child, it used to be just Boxing Day. So these, these customs are constantly evolving and changing, which is the interesting thing about them. I think the other thing that I pick up on quite often is there's this sense of, oh, yeah, well, I don't really want to do it, I've got to. There's this kind of reluctance. I mean, you try and take it away from anyone or any community and they will fight to save it. But at the same time, there's, oh, yeah. Here it is again, all these bloody visitors coming into Arta. But of course they want the visitors because that brings income and they raise funds. And, and you have to raise a lot of money these days to keep them going because of all the extra expenses. You know, just in the last 10, 20 years, they've got to have, you know, they've got to fulfill health and safety requirements. They've got to have. I mean, that was interesting chatting to the people at, at the Bartle. They'd set up a committee and trained up a number of people so they could manage and steward the crowds themselves and block the roads themselves so they didn't have to pay the police to do that so that they can run it themselves each year and save money. That's a huge um, responsibility, isn't it? Particularly if you're having to apply uh, to the local authority for road closures and also you've got things such as health and safety considerations. I mean, the famous cheese rolling at Cooper's Hill in Gloucestershire, that, that was one of the um, the casualties of the COVID lockdown. And again, that's dangerous in normal circumstances in that um, you've got like a nine-pound double Gloucester that is rolled down this, um, this really, really steep hill at Brockworth in um, Gloucestershire. And every year there are people breaking legs Anyone who's seen footage of this um, online will, will know what I'm talking about. The first time I went to that, which was 1997, 33 people were injured. And actually, you'd think it's the um, either the people at the bottom who get hit by the cheese, which doesn't tend to happen, uh, really, or you'd think it was the uh, competitors. And certainly a lot of competitors get, get hurt. But the real injuries come when a competitor flies into the crowd, which does happen because uh, you can't imagine how steep this slope is. I remember when I first saw a ski jump, you know, a professional Olympic ski jump. And you think that is not a slope. That is a cliff. And Cooper's Hill is like that. It's so steep. You can't run down it. You just tumble. And if you tumble and fly in the wrong direction, you hit hit the crowd and that's what some of those injuries in 1997 were so the, the following year they didn't cancel the event but they slimmed it down to just two races
races, but it has been cancelled a couple of times, once due to foot and mouth in 2001 and once due to a lack of safety officers in 2003. But what they do when it's cancelled to keep the custom going is they secretly roll a cheese at uh, at sunrise. So this year they were up on the hill at some early hour in the morning and rolled a cheese so that the custom is maintained. That's interesting, isn't it? So there is that sort of um, instinct that something needs to be done. We had a similar situation at Castleton in Derbyshire in the Peak District where there is the annual Castleton Garland ceremony which takes place on the, usually on the 29th of May, unless that falls on a Sunday. And again, there was lots of discussion about this, wasn't there, in the, in the local community about how they were going to mark this, and they were really concerned that there might be a big influx of people who expected to sort of see this. Because by the time uh, of, of, of the garland, we were allowed to travel. So we were allowed to travel. Lockdown had kind of eased slightly. So we both went out there, didn't we, Andrew, on the on the 29th of uh, May with the microphones and cameras to try and capture something about um, what was going on in the village. And we, the first thing that we noticed was that people had um, done individual sort of displays. They'd put, they'd put local flowers in windows at the ends of roads. And I think the, uh, the, the Garland Committee had, had asked local people to do that rather than actually to come out of the houses. On that evening in Castleton, I was kind of wandering around and a chap walked out of his house and said, is it going to be a ceremony? And I said, well, I said, not as far as I know. There's just these uh, displays of uh, wildflowers. And he said, ah, ah. So I, I thought I'd pop up to the uh, the town square where at the end of the procession there normally, normally is a small ceremony at the, the war memorial. And there were a few people around and I no one would tell me what was happening. Anyway, I saw this chap at the far end of the square carrying a, a posy of wildflowers. So I went and asked if I could take his photo, socially distanced, of course. Uh, I said, um, is something going to happen? And he said, no, no, if you were here at half half seven, you wouldn't see anything happening at all. So I uh, I hung around and at half seven, there were maybe 10 or 15 local residents spread out around the square and the chap I've been talking to was actually the chairman, Peter Outram. A recording of Rivali, some other tunes and the national anthem was played and he processed forward and laid the posy at the base of the war memorial, which is kind of a really important part of the normal custom. So they managed to mark it and they've got their lockdown garland page on their website if anyone wants to go and have a look. Well, they invited a residents of the village to send in photographs of the flower displays and they made a really good online image gallery of some of the best. All these communities all find some way of marking the occasion, even if as a result of the lockdown regulations, they weren't allowed to sort of perform the rituals and the, uh, the traditions in the usual way. I suppose the, the important thing is, is that something happens in real time as well. And there was a number of customs around the country that did actually try and do something at the time that the tradition was supposed to happen. And probably the, the most successful was the one in Hastings in Sussex. Yes, the very popular Green Man Festival cancelled for the first time in its 30 year history. On this occasion, they tried to do it all online. I think we've all become familiar with using Zoom, but this was a big Zoom event. They had capacity for a thousand people, 300 performers performers and 700 visitors and I think they tried to stick to the uh, the normal times of the procession and the, and the different activities in the day and at each point they'd have some video that they'd show of what normally happened and then they had people in full costume fully decked out in their living rooms all around the country because people go to Hastings from all over the place internationally and everyone was joining in and telling stories and marking each each stage in the 
in the day. And so I, th- I think, like you were saying, that it's really important that something happens in real time, but you can track down the video online. And there's five hours plus of, of Zoom custom there to see. I believe the ceremony, uh, the event at Stonehenge this year was broadcast online. Is that correct, David? Yes. English Heritage, who, who own Stonehenge, they um, obviously they didn't want large groups of people congregating there on Midsummer Day. So what they decided to do is to put the whole thing online on a webcam. So you could you could actually um, log into the URL and you could actually sit and watch the stones live from your device. Now, I, I actually did it on my mobile phone, logged on. I think it was just after nine o'clock on Midsummer Day. And normally that's the time when the ancient order of Druids are processing. There is also the sunrise in the morning as well. But no one was allowed near the stones for that. And it was just interesting just to try and do this remotely and see the sun setting and see the sun rising in the morning. It's not really a substitute to the real thing, but it was important to actually mark it and to acknowledge the fact that it is one of the main customs and traditions that mark the ritual year, the midsummer sunrise and sunset at Stonehenge. I think that's the timing of COVID coincided with probably one of the busiest times of the year. These calendar customs exist throughout the year, but... Probably the two busiest times are sort of April, May, June and September, October, November, which kind of mark spring and autumn. It's been interesting how different uh, customs have kind of adapted uh, to lockdown. And it's also been really interesting to see the importance of social media and, and new technologies we've all had to adapt so quickly. Okay, so I think we ought to now move the discussion on to talk about some of the more spontaneous customs and traditions that have appeared since March when we formally went into lockdown. The COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 has resulted in communal and individual responses to lockdown across the UK that have been widely shared and often copied in both the physical and online worlds. When in forced isolation, people need to find some way to create a sense of community or some form of common activity, even when their usual rituals and activities are severely limited or restricted. As Raphael Baer, writing in The Guardian, pointed out, none of this should be regarded as a superficial aspect of the COVID-19 crisis, as societies are shaped by custom and ritual as much as they are held together by legislation. For both anthropologists and folklorists, the appearance and reappearance of rituals, symbols and commemorations is no surprise at all. Dominic Bryan of Queen's University in Belfast has written about the symbolic and political significance of the minute silence that was observed by the nation at 11am on the 28th of April to pay respect to key workers. He says that in UK terms, it mimics the better known and better observed events on Remembrance or Armistice Day, when a minute silence is also observed at 11am to remember those who lost their lives in the service of the military during the wars. And it is noticeable, he says, that this fits a common political discourse using war as a metaphor in dealing with the pandemic. The importance of these new rituals and symbols was recognized by Her Majesty the Queen in her March 2020 broadcast to the nation. She referred to the need for the country to pull together and evoke a sense of national identity. She suggested that new traditions and customs are an expression of our national spirit that will help to define our future. Many of these new activities developed spontaneously as new customs and rituals. Now, the most obvious of these was the communal clapping on Thursday nights that began in March in support of frontline NHS staff. 
Now, Andrew, you've done some research on this um, aspect. Well, aside from taking part in it each week, um, I've been looking at the clapping and clapping and other expressions of communal appreciation and resilience followed lockdown in many European countries and were widely shared on social media before being picked up by the news media. Italy was the first European country to impose a lockdown on the 9th of March and communal singing from balconies and windows was reported on the 12th with a flash mob event organised for the 13th and I remember seeing this when it was broadcast. By the time the UK entered lockdown on the 23rd of March, nightly clapping was taking place across the world from Paris to Istanbul to India and Canada. Inspired by the clapping reported from other countries, London-based Dutch yoga teacher Anna-Marie Plaz promoted a clap for carers for Thursday the 26th of March via a Facebook post and the event quickly took off nationally. My experience was, was quite interesting of the clap for carers because the first one on the 26th of March we actually missed because we were having a meal and we wondered what all the noise was and the fireworks that were going off outside. Uh, but after that, we all joined in. Everyone was outside clapping and there was a, a chap in a, in a large white van who used to drive down the, uh, the centre of the estate, honking his horn, getting everyone out and you could hear fireworks going off. And it was great and everyone could see each other socially distanced um, once a week. I think whilst the uh, Thursday night ritual allowed people to show appreciation for the NHS and other key workers, I think it also provided an important opportunity during lockdown to people to engage in a communal custom and meet and talk with their neighbours. For instance, my 88-year-old father, who was having to self-isolate and was finding it difficult, he'd normally keep himself to himself, but he he even took part dusting off an old brass car horn and attracting attention from his bedroom window. On the normally quiet street where I live, neighbours took part every week, staying outside afterwards for about 30 minutes, talking and sharing stories. On the Thursday closest to the VE Day anniversary, a neighbour played a few wartime tunes on his car radio, resulting in a mini sing-along. This then led to the uh, Thursday night ritual developing into a music event, with the addition of a French horn, a violin and my guitar. One neighbour even wrote a lockdown jig for the event. Anna-Marie decided to bring the clap for carers to an end after 10 weeks, saying that she thought it would be good to stop it at its peak uh, amidst increasing concerns that the event was becoming politicised. She said, I think the narrative is starting to change and I don't want the clap to be negative. Now, there are many other examples of customs that appeared spontaneously during the lockdown, and probably the best um, known, the most familiar, was the display of rainbow drawings and teddy bears in people's front windows. It's interesting that the symbol of the rainbow has has taken on a new political meaning as a symbol for supporting frontline workers in the NHS. There was also a number of local and regional traditions that appeared almost from nowhere or appeared to appear from nowhere anyway um, such as the decorated scarecrows that appeared in gardens and beside roads in parts of the Midlands and in Scotland. Very early on in lockdown probably the week that we went into lockdown a scarecrow appeared on the main road close to my house. It was tied to a lamppost with a sign hung around its neck giving support to the NHS key workers and just a couple of weeks later a Boris mask was added 
to the scarecrow's uh, head, which survived for quite a while, over a month or so, and then this was removed, and the scarecrow's still there um, uh, with a new face. Uh, I don't recognise it. Maybe it's a local resident, somebody's birthday or something, but this figure's survived. Following this, I started to see scarecrows popping up spontaneously, and then a local uh, community group actually organised a mini scarecrow festival so that children could have something to do, make scarecrows, display them in their front gardens, and there was an, a, a prize for the, uh, the best scarecrow. I was out on a walk with my wife in May in the Loxley Valley, and we, we walked up the hill towards Stannington, and we saw what appeared to be a person sitting on the top of a high stone wall. And I thought, this is a very unusual person. They hadn't moved for ages. And when we actually got close, I realised that this was quite an elaborate, decorated scarecrow with the support of the NHS rainbow hanging around its face, attached by a piece of string. And as we walked upwards into the village and along the main street, we saw more and more and more elaborate versions of these scarecrows. And I believe that a number of them have been photographed and featured in the local newspaper, the Sheffield Star and Telegraph. As well as the scarecrows, which provided both a creative outlet for adults and children and something to look at on our daily walks, other interventions appeared. Uh, on one street, we came across fairy doors carefully placed at the bottom of every tree. And on another, short inspirational quotes were pinned to every tree. And both of these interventions survived for more than two months. We also had the appearance of curbside gifts, random collections of belongings left outside people's gates and driveways, in part due to the closure of charity shops and tips, but also a result of excess free time, which allowed people to clear out lofts, spare rooms and garages. There also seems to have been a lot of crochet and knitting going on with knitted rainbows and pom-poms decorating gates and windows and, and other locations and even crocheted pillar box covers appearing and strangely moving from box to box. Another ex example of an activity really designed to give children something to do during lockdown is the appearance of COVID-19 snakes of painted pebbles and stones that have appeared in a number of places paintings on the stones kind of depicting NHS workers and um, local landmarks and these are a, a, an expression of folk art I guess. Um, in Buxton a snake of more than 2,000 pebbles slowly grew along the side of the pavilion gardens. Uh, similar snakes have appeared in Encliffe Park in Sheffield, in Rotherham and as far away as Aberdeen. And it's interesting also during the the pandemic the way that some of these scarecrows have been um, decorated and the themes that have been used, because as well as the, the more general, the rainbows and the supporting of NHS and frontline workers, there has also been the appearance of heroes and villains. Indeed, on a on a street nearby, a complex restaging of Boris Johnson's zipwire fiasco appeared to the amusement of many. There have also been examples of uh, Dominic Cummings, masks that have been spotted attached to scarecrows. I think there was one spotted in Tideswell in the Peak District, and there has also been... Captain Tom Moore. I think it's quite interesting how we've had both heroes and villains during lockdown. Tom Moore made the perfect hero, his determination to complete his walk, to mark his 100th birthday, the amazing amount of money he raised for the NHS charities, his number one record and his knighthood, and all this coinciding with the VE Day celebrations on May the 8th. The timing was perfect. 
and I think this suited the mood of the nation during the early part of lockdown. Whilst we were isolated and worried about the virus, there was a positive determination to continue what you might call a wartime spirit. We marked our presence and shared our thanks with displays of rainbows and communal clapping. We provided activities and amusements for children with scarecrows and stone snakes, and we gave away gifts outside our houses. By the end of May, however, I think frustration with the lockdown and the management of the crisis, along with the ever-rising death toll, was growing, and we needed a villain. And Dominic Cummings kindly fell on his sword and provided the perfect anti-hero, keeping the media busy for weeks. So these are all interesting themes that you you find in other areas of folklore and tradition. You know, the, the, the hero and the villain... These are the sort of um, the themes that are played out, actually, in some of these calendar customs that we were talking about earlier. I imagine we'll see Cummings as an enemy of bonfire at Lewis this year, and who knows, Barnard Castle may be planning an annual Cummings custom or ritual. As, as well as the more serious side, there was also some more extremely bizarre, um, spontaneously occurring um, customs that you can tell us a bit more about, Andrew. Would you be referring to the Belper Moo? That's correct. For more than 12 weeks, the town of Belper in Derbyshire held a daily moo at 6.30pm every evening, during which people stepped outside the houses to moo, and I mean moo! Moo! As loud as they could for two minutes. The event apparently originated out of the frustration and boredom of lockdown and was first performed the same week that the clap for carers began. And it wasn't expected to last, really, but social media allowed the mood to grow and it became a fun event attracting large numbers of parents and children every evening in an expression of both communal identity and eccentricity. Uh, It was widely promoted on social media and the event attracted news and national media attention focusing on the craziness and the bizarreness of the event. And you can even buy souvenirs, you can get a moo mask and uh, mugs and t-shirts, I think, from the local Facebook group raising funds for charities. An interesting element was it became competitive, uh, whereby people used smartphone decibel meters to measure the loudness of their moos and posted videos on Facebook, reaching levels as high as 123.8 decibels. Wow. Oh. <laughs> One more big go. Uh, The moo was performed in places as far afield as Japan, India and America and nearby Monash. The last moo took place on Saturday the 13th of June. I was very sad not to to make it, I'm afraid. I think uh, an interesting question is uh, what will be left? You know, will any of these customs continue? Do you think we'll have a a yearly clap for carers? Um, What will the legacy be, David, do you think? Well, I think it's been suggested uh, by Anne-Marie, who, who was responsible for, for the original um, Clap for Carers, that we should do this every year on the anniversary to, you know, to mark both the pandemic and also our gratitude for the work that was done on our behalf by the NHS. So I do think it will, it will carry on in some respect, probably um, on the um, anniversary, the annual anniversary um, in March 2020. Uh, but as we come out of lockdown... Uh, what's becoming increasingly important is that we have some way of preserving and recording the evidence of all these COVID-related um, customs the, and, and, and putting together the everyday material, the culture and photography, for instance, 
that people have, um, have curated during the um, during the pandemic. I think there's been numerous responses to COVID-19 that have been very well documented by, by their own makers, aren't they? Because people are posting their images, posting their experiences online, on social media, uh, and probably more than any other kind of event of this type. Not that there'd been that many events of this type, but uh, it's been very, very well documented. But I suppose the important thing is to collect this material and to study this material. And there's been a, a number of um, museums and archives around the country that have already initiated projects of this kind. Close to home, Sheffield City Archives, um, run by Sheffield City Council, um, they put out an appeal for photographs, diaries and flyers that they've been collecting. And they've already got a collection of similar items from the 1918-19 the uh, Spanish flu epidemic. Historic England, um, they launched an appeal um, asking people to send in photographs of everyday life in lockdown. Um, they called that the Picturing Lockdown Collection. You can find that online. There was something like 200 photographs, including several from South Yorkshire. Uh, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, they've made an appeal for people to send in donations of homemade signs. There's the rainbow decorations that we discussed earlier. And also in terms of folklore, I mean, folklorists are naturally uh, collectors of this kind of material. And um, there is a, a lockdown law project um, that you can find online. And that was launched by the Elphinstone Centre at Aberdeen University on the 17th of April. And they, they again, they've got a, an appeal for people to donate material culture, signs, flyers, diaries, and collect people's personal experiences of what life was like during the lockdown. I mean, we've got our own little collection on our website, uh, Centre for Contemporary Legend. And what we'd like to do is is to ask people who are listening to this podcast if they'd like to share their personal experiences of local customs and interventions and responses to COVID-19 that are perhaps particular to their area. You'll find a link alongside this podcast that will take you to a page on our website which gives information about what we're what we're asking for. So on behalf of Andrew and myself and my colleagues at the Centre for Contemporary Legend, we really hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you have uh, any contributions or, or material that would add to the collection that we're putting together, please get in touch. Yes, do let us know, and thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We were drunk a lot tonight, drunk the night before. We're going to get drunk tonight if we never get drunk no more. When I'm drunk, I'm as happy as can be. I belong to a drunken family. Victorious, victorious. One bottle of beer amongst the four of us. Glory be to God, there isn't any more of us, because one of us got some the bloody lot bottle and all. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. Oh.